Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So here we are again, Thursday night, April 22nd, back on the podcast grind. What are we talking about this week? Yeah, always good to be back. We got three segments this week and what I think will be a bit of a shorter episode, which might be a relief for for some people and maybe particularly for you, uh, who has long been on the we should have shorter episodes bandwagon, uh, much to my chagrin. But this this episode might trend your way. Anyway, three segments. The first is we got a lot of feedback on our segment about the Georgia voting laws and MLB's uh, reaction to the voting laws and the reaction to their reaction. So um, we're going to do a bit of like a mailbag in terms of some of the listeners' reactions to that segment. So we're going to talk about that first. Um, and then we haven't talked about foreign policy in a while. So we're going to spend a segment touching on a couple of the big foreign policy issues of the past week or so, um, primarily the Iran nuclear deal and whether or not the United States is going to get back into that deal and to the long promised, uh, potentially long awaited uh, withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. So we'll talk about that for a little bit. And finally, we'll stay overseas and talk about a far more lighthearted topic the rise and swift fall of the European Soccer Super League. So we'll conclude with that. But Ricky, before we get into all that, I do have to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsman at Cannon Hill Woodworking, building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Ricky, that's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at cannonhillwood.com. The guys at Cannon Hill want to remind you, literally everything you own is a de- depreciating asset. But your Cannon Hill wood table will retain its value forever, even when it's time to give it to your grandkids because it's made out of real wood, which makes sense, unlike your nostalgia for the Bush or Clinton years. (laughs) Again, no one better than these guys. There really isn't. I mean, if you don't follow them on Instagram, but you're interested in just first absorbing some beautiful wooden, handcrafted wooden tables, I really... I really, this is a wholehearted non-sponsor endorsement. Uh, it's a feast for the eyes, really. There you go. That's nice. Yeah. Even if you can't yet afford to buy one of their beautiful tables, you can start to envision when you are able to afford it, what you might want in your house. Exactly. Exactly. Great. All right. So one of the cooler things about doing this podcast over these last you know six or so months has been the conversations that it's opened up for me and for you with other people in our lives who uh, maybe we wouldn't have had these conversations with previously. And, you know, I mentioned that example of my uncle over, over like Easter dinner last week. And we, he was talking about Georgia of all things. And so we recorded that segment um, last week, episode 23. If people haven't listened to, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, And we got a lot of feedback from people you know, kind of across the spectrum on it. And there, there are a few comments that I wanted to bring up and talk through and get your reaction to. So um, the first one is from my friend Meredith, who I go to school with, um, who's been a great listener and supporter of the podcast. And she 
was pleased generally with the discussion, was glad that uh, we, we talked about some of the aspects of the voting law, which she feels could be particularly discriminatory uh, against minorities. Uh, but one of the things she said that she wished we had talked more about was the provision in the voting law that the Georgia State Legislature, the, the state election board, can take the power out of the hands of the local election like committees if they find over a two-year period that there are some sort of like irregularities uh, in, in that district. And so I want to talk a little bit more, just give like an overview of that provision, because she's right, we didn't touch on that really at all. You mentioned it at one point to your credit, but we didn't you know, dive into that much. Uh, but the law empowers the state panel to take over, the state panel being the state election board. If in at least two elections within two years, the board finds, quote, nonfeasance, malfeasance, or gross negligence in the administration of the elections. And while like on its face, this seems to be another one of those good provisions, right? Like if we're finding election fraud in a certain county, then we should, the state should step in and you know, make sure their elections are running you know, fairly in, in an organized fashion. Uh, but the legislature, we also replaced the Secretary of State, which is uh, an elected position and who's the chair of the board of the state election, the state election board with an appointee of the General Assembly. And the legislature now has, has three seats that they appoint to this board. So effectively, the legislature could really flood the, the state election board with their own political appointees potentially find, you know, quote unquote malfeasance or election regularities or irregularities or whatever you want to call it in certain counties and take over the elections in those counties and districts. Uh, and so this is Meredith was saying, she was like, that to me could be a really potentially dangerous provision that people, including us, are maybe overlooking. So uh, thoughts on, on that provision on, on, you know, Meredith's thoughts in general. Yeah, I, I think I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, I, I guess I have a couple of things um, that struck me about it. One is is really the the tendency of the media to grasp onto things that kind of everybody can understand um, to sort of focus the uh, attention on, you know, not being able to hand out water in in the voting lines yeah. as like, you know, the headline grabbing, whereas something like this is far more potentially insidious, right? Potentially uh, damaging to the sort of integrity of how these elections work, because now you're using appointees, uh, uh, appointees from the legislature, which we know in Georgia even if the population demographics change from like a overall statewide, that kind of the county and districting lines, the way that we elect the legislature, it's still going to be heavily Republican for a long time to come. Like Metro Atlanta may be growing in population, maybe growing Democratic or leaning more Democratic. But in general, the state of Georgia is very, very red. And so the legislature, regardless of what the governor may be, or maybe even the secretary of state, if the legislature is controlled red, they can start appointing people um, how they want. And if they have influence over the elections in certain ways, 
you know, we could potentially have seen a different outcome in the state of Georgia. But I think her point, which is that, you know, a lot of people sort of overlooked this because there's a lot of nuance here. There's nothing clear, you know, as you said, on its face, there's nothing about it that sounds untoward. But if we if we really start to pick it apart, this is actually where we might have some of the biggest um, issues, especially if the state legislature is sort of picking and choosing counties that they don't like, right? So we know which counties are the ones that are going to be uh, circumspect. It's not the or, you know the ones that are going to get the extra scrutiny. It's not the ones that are are voting in the direction that the legislature uh, sort of approves of. Yeah, exactly. It's continually like we've learned this lesson in doing this podcast and trying to dive more deeply than we previously had into these issues where it's it's so much of like the smaller things and the behind the scenes type provisions that really are the ones that end up potentially making the biggest difference. And who knows, like, again, advocates for this law are able to justifiably make a strong case. We're like, hey, we do want the legislature to be carefully, we want transparency in our elections and we want to have like close scrutiny to make sure there's no election fraud. Like that seems like a very legitimate reason, but when you give people these powers, as you know, Meredith is kind of pointing out is, and you said, well, is that they can use these powers in really nefarious ways, which have been glossed over and maybe will be glossed over in the future. Like, I don't know how much uh, press it would get if the legislature decided to take over a certain counties like voting, uh, the administration of, of their voting. But like, those are the things that actually can, can really make a difference when it's, uh, you know, it, it's not a nonpartisan person who's trying to like count votes here. Um, so I, th- I think that was a really good point. And again, continue to be a good lesson for us of digging beyond like what the headlines are. Yeah. All right. So another piece of feedback we got was from our friend, Jason. And he said that he wished that we had spent more time talking about how there's really little money that has been spent in the grand scheme of our country, uh, looking at like voter fraud detection. So we've we've had this <laughs> grand debate over these last six months uh, about, and longer, I suppose, about like voter fraud in general. And the big kind of narrative on the right has been that there's widespread voter fraud. uh, And the big narrative on the left has been like, there is no evidence of that. And what Jason was making the point for was that, you know, maybe there is voter fraud, maybe there isn't, but we haven't as a country expended significant resources into trying to like actually gather data on it and prove it or disprove it. And his point was that like, if voter fraud doesn't exist, then if we had if we have data to back that up, then we can disprove some of these narratives on the right. But if if we have if we don't have the data to prove it, it's just your word against mine. Me saying that there's widespread voter fraud and you saying there is no voter fraud. And then the issue continues on and on. And you can never disprove the people that believe in the narrative. There is widespread voter fraud because there is no data to back up your argument. So um, thoughts on on Jason's point that we actually should be, you know, expending far more resources as a country to do studies on election data and voter fraud to either uncover it or prove that it doesn't exist, like most people on the left would, you know, want you to believe. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I I I think we we spoke, we chatted with Jason offline um, about this, and I I you know on the on the face, I you know I I will always be a fan of more data and comprehensive studies that kind of put any you know like a myth busting a you know if you will put put these some of these things to rest. I think that's never a bad idea. Um, unfortunately. I think in the politicized environment that that we live in, there is almost no way to do this without kind of taking a political tact and thus the results of any kind of study like this almost being tainted from the outcome. Um, I thought a lot of, you know, when he suggested this, I thought a lot about sort of the, the Mueller report and how regardless of what he was going to find or not find, 50% of the country was going to say that that is all of the evidence and more that I would ever need to say, you know, I know exactly what happened. There was collusion with a foreign country on, on the election on Donald Trump's part or the exact opposite. And <clears throat> unfortunately, it feels like we're in a state of polarization where these types of studies and commissions that we are, that we do to help bring a level of transparency to people, it doesn't seem to um, have the intended effect. I think that was one piece of it. The other piece is that I think we probably spend more money than we acknowledge, just maybe not on like a, as like a national concerted effort. Um, election security is a big topic at the state level um, in, in every I think in every state, it's not um, it's not something that we sort of just take for take for granted. Specifically on this, you know, cyber issues. Um, it, I'm not saying that we're doing it to the most of our abilities, but generally, like we're, we're regarded across the world as having some of the safest and most secure elections. And so, I think it's really on the onus of people who think that there is fraud to actually uncover evidence of fraud. Um, and that the, and that it, it's not just like, well, not ha having evidence of no, or having no evidence of no fraud is not the same thing as I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that, um, is sort of, a um, I don't know what the, what the word is, but I, you, you know what, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't think that those two things are, um, equivalent, um, specifically when we had, you know, over the past four months, like uh, basically half the country looking for reasons to, to say that the election was um, fraudulent and every single claim that they had just getting tossed out left and right from court for having essentially no merit. Um, so I don't know for, for me that it's not, I don't know that that is something that will push forward election integrity or give people greater confidence in elections. Yeah, you make a bunch of good points. And it's, it's frustrating because like we've constantly lamented here, where the people are just not working from the same set of facts. And even if we, you give someone quote unquote, you know, objective report or objective set of facts, people are still just going to take it and run with it as, as they want. It's why, you know, it's, what is it? Lies, damn lies, and then statistics. Uh, so on the one hand, I agree with that point. On the other hand, 
just because we don't think people will agree with the study doesn't mean that we shouldn't do one to, a, to be at least able to, to point to it and say, look, you know, we did everything you asked for. You know, we, we threw every, the, the full weight of the government behind it. But you know, the problem is that if like, the Biden administration does this, the narrative will be like, of course you didn't find anything. You weren't really looking for anything. And largely if the next Republican, if you know, the next Republican administration comes in and finds things, it'll be like, well, yeah, if you wanna go looking for something hard enough, you can find anything you want. So that's what's hard. And yeah, I mean, that, that you don't wanna just throw your hands up, but yeah, to your point, I don't know that any study that comes out is going to make a meaningful difference in how people feel or don't feel in terms of like, voter fraud and that's that's kind of frustrating um definitely frustrating uh all right so then uh, our friend jeff who was on the program uh, a few weeks ago um, recent author if you if you haven't listened to that episode we had a good talk with him about um his latest book and, and cancel culture and uh, he's someone very tuned in to current events and has lots of opinions so uh he had, he had a couple points that I, i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on and uh, his first one was that he doesn't believe that voter ID is racist. And you and I had had this conversation in the episode and I said, you know, I don't think it's it's racist, but it might have, you know, a disparate uh, impact on on minority groups, on poor groups. And you were pretty much like, is that, is that just a distinction without a difference? Is that essentially the same thing? Uh, and, you know, we, we had disagreed a little bit. Um, Jeff's point uh, was that, look, I've seen no data that shows me that a large percentage of minorities don't have voter ID. There's no epidemic of minorities without voter ID and that, you know, quite honestly, it would be racist to assume that minorities are the ones that don't have IDs any more so than say white people don't have IDs. And so to that point, you know, curious to hear your thoughts on that one. Yeah. And it's, it's a fair point and it does um, kind of in some ways, like, dovetail into what Meredith was saying is that, you know, we're missing the point of to, you know, what is, what is really um, potentially problematic in the, in the legislation that was proposed um, that, you know, maybe the voter ID piece of it, although historically that has been something that people have latched onto is actually not going to have as much of an impact um, as people would think. Um, so, the study that that you had referenced um, during our earlier podcast was by the UC Santa Barbara. They looked at um, a number of different states with varying degrees of uh, strictness in their in their voter ID rules, um, and did conclude that v- voter identification rules do have a disproportionate impact on Black, Hispanic, and sort of racial. Uh, minority groups. Now, the exact causes, I think, you know, something that Jeff has alluded to is that like, there is nothing inherent about voter identification that is racist. And, you know, to assume that without evidence is, I mean, (laughs) I, that is, I I think that that is a a fair point. Um, I think when, when people talk about you know, an epidemic of like, all right, because we have these voter ID rules, now no black people are going to get to vote. I think that really misses the point. Because when we're talking about states like Georgia, 
that were, you know, decided by less than 15,000 votes, it does not have to be a huge number of people that get booted off the rolls, right? It's, it's, it can be that margin um, that can be less than, you know, a, a tenth of a percent or half a percent in the statewide election. Um, and if that is disproportionately impacting a racial group, it has the exact same effect, right? Of, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's, I think some of these things are difficult to prove, you know, on, on their face, but it's sort of been historically established that in, insofar as these rules make it more difficult, like j just making it more difficult to vote has not necessarily brought us major benefits in uh, like a, in reducing election fraud um, and does have the impact of, you know, if somebody's license gets expired, that's potentially, you know, they're just getting kicked off the, the roll for that. And, and so there are, and, and, we just sort of know as, as, and yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it is, it's certainly, it's certainly tough, but I, I think there is evidence. There is evidence out there that when these things happen on the whole, they are more impactful to poor communities, which are disproportionately black and uh, minority. And so to, to say that, you know, there is zero evidence that, that these kind of rules impact um impact those communities i don't think is true i think it's fair to say that it might not be a massive impact but i think at the end of the day because these these states are getting decided by such small margins that any impact is too big of an impact yeah and to, to be fair jeff and you acknowledge this is that there isn't maybe as much data as we had anticipated even going into that episode to mm -hmm. like prove these points like we both cite this study from 2016 2017 that USC Santa Robert did um and like if you go to the American Civil Liberties Union they, they'll give you some data but of course you know they're coming at it with a slant too but it I guess this goes to Jason's point and Meredith's point too actually is that sometimes or oftentimes probably we along with most people get caught up in narratives right that, that voter ID makes it more difficult for minorities to vote and it's fair for Jeff to say prove it I, I do think, though, and your last point is well taken, is that we know that, and I cited this in the episode, that 11% of uh, Americans eligible to have voter IDs, like licenses and, and passports, and those sort of things don't. So we're talking 25 million plus Americans. Uh, we know that oftentimes immigrants, whether they're naturalized citizens or you know, re more recent immigrants, are less likely for a number of reasons to go and get IDs. And certainly, in states where there are voter ID laws, they are statistically as shown, I think it was like a 12% difference in states with voter ID laws for naturalized citizens to, to go vote. And I don't know that it's racist to say that poor communities are disproportionately minority communities because historically the United States as you know, our government, our society has disadvantaged those communities far more than they have white communities. So to me, that just seems factual to say that you know, poor communities are often, you know, the Venn diagram of poor communities and minority communities, there's a large center in the middle there. And that's no shot at minorities. That's a, a larger indictment of our country as a whole. Uh, and so 
Yeah, like I, I'll stand, I, I'll stand by everything I said in that episode. Was that I do believe that in that voter ID is generally a good thing. I think you know we do require. And Jeff made this point. You know, we require ID to buy a beer or drive or buy a gun or all, all these sorts of things. Um, I guess in some cases, buy a gun. We're not going to go down that road, rabbit hole right now. Uh, but my point to counter that was fine. I'm not against voter ID, but we just need to make it easier for. All, everybody to access those IDs um, in, across the spectrum racially, but particularly like cl class-wise. Uh, but again, a, a good reminder to us to keep pushing beyond the narrative. And then finally, Jeff's other point that he made was that, look, when Stacey Abrams ran for governor uh, back in 2018, she lost in a narrow election to Brian Kemp. And there were there was large outrage about that the outcome of that election. And there were accusations that it was stolen, you know, quote unquote, stolen from us uh, in 2018. Maybe a lot of people have pointed to like the backlash from the outcome in that election towards to the success that Democrats had in the 2020 elections in Georgia. Uh, and I think that's a fair you know, correlation there. Uh, so Jeff's point was that, look, there were there was outrage about the 2018 elections that went against the Democrats in Georgia. There was outrage in the 2020 elections that went against Republicans. So, so to say that the Georgia law was made in bad faith or was a partisan measure to ensure that you know white voters are you know not are not losing power or that Republicans are not losing power that doesn't seem fair. That seems another like victim of the narrative here, where when Democrats cry false stolen election, everyone kind of agrees with them, and when Republicans cry false stolen election everyone says you guys are idiots prove it yeah well so there are a couple huge differences there the major problems that Stacey Abrams was pointing out are exactly the problems that people are looking at these new bills to cause right so they looked at a lot of voter roll purges that were uh, essentially done by the then secretary of state Brian Kemp uh, before he got elected governor, right? So it's, it's very, we're talking about very different things. One's talking about fraud and the other is essentially saying that we disenfranchised a number of voters who we think would have voted for Stacey Abrams. So there's, there's one piece. The other piece is that after the 2016 election, when Republicans won, they didn't say, okay, we actually think that these elections were not fair or something. We need to overhaul our election system. They waited until they lost the 2020 election. And then all of a sudden, now it's unfair. Now we got to change the rules. So I don't think there's nearly as much hypocrisy in the Georgia situation as people would like to believe if they want to fall in the narrative that like, you know, people lose elections, either it was unfair then and it's unfair now. And so we're fixing it now. I don't, I don't like the chronology here doesn't add up. Yeah. I don't have much to add to that. Uh, <laughs> I think that was, that was well said, uh, but I will say that again, we couldn't be, so this is going to be our 25th episode. And we, like I said, we've been doing this about six months and it's been, Besides talking to you, Ricky, which has been you know, the number one benefit for me, being able to have a lot of these conversations with other people in my life has been, uh, I think, by far the, the best secondary benefit. And not, not only do we appreciate people listening, but the people taking the time to reach out and text us or when, when we do get to see people stopping and talking with us uh, with feedback. And it's cool because 
Meredith, Jason, and Jeff, for different reasons, were all kind of critiquing our segment. They were listening, they were engaging it and saying like, look, you missed this, or what about this point here? Um, and it pushes us to be better too. So not that we'll do one of these like quote unquote mailbag segments every episode, but when people have like really good thoughts like that, it, it's it's really worth taking the time, you know, to examine our own thinking and, and things that we could have done better or, or missed in our own segments. Yeah, totally agree. And I mean, I think, I think it just highlights too, that everybody thinks about these issues in different ways or focuses on different aspects of, uh, of these issues. And that, you know, we as consumers of media are often led to focus on certain things. And and it is always helpful to take that step back. And so it it has been, um, it's, it's really fun to hear this kind of uh, feedback and, and, and chat a little bit more about it. It's always, it's always good to dive in like this. And yeah, my dog is just chewing on a bone here. People are going to hear that. It is what it is. <laughs> well, we'll give you a minute to go take care of that. And when we come back, we will, we'll head overseas to do some foreign policy talk. All right. Um, justice will be served and the battle will rage. This big dog will fight when you rattle his cage. You'll be sorry that you mess with the U.S. of A. Because we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. All right. So I wanted to talk a little bit this week about, uh, about foreign policy, which is kind of a subject that you and I both um, avoid for, I mean, I guess ignorance is, is, is potentially the right word. It's, it's just something that, you know, of, of all of the things that we spend our time reading up on, I think um, a lot of world events and, and sort of how the little, the, you know, the political dynamics of a lot of these different things that are going on in the world are um, less of a focus of, of a lot of what we have looked into. We've looked at a lot of you know the um, the current sort of social dynamics within the United States and a lot of things that are going on here at home um, and how those interplay. Um, but one of the things that we've talked about, especially leading up to the election, um, <clears throat> is that in many ways the president, um, although you know important for setting the tone um, for a lot of these things, cannot often have as big of an impact on. Um, you know, the, the local economy or, you know, the national economy, as we would like to think, because we live in this global world. But what one of the areas that the pre- presidency has always had, um, you know, an outsized impact on has been foreign affairs, foreign relations, um, diplomacy, and, and sort of our strategy abroad. Um, and so this past week, kind of with two major events happened, and I guess, you know, uh, <laughs> we didn't, we didn't kind of educate ourselves and we're, we're not foreign policy experts today if we weren't last week. So we'll, we'll preface the episode by saying that. But I think there are a couple interesting things um, that happened this past week that we can talk about just from like a broader, uh, you know, a broader sort of thousand foot view and, and talk about maybe some shifts in the way that our president and Congress are kind of viewing some of these issues because of the way 
they think they're playing within the American public. So the first one perhaps um, should have been one of the bigger headlines because of some other things that were happening this week um, really sort of skated, uh, slid in under the radar is, is President Biden essentially um, officially announcing a full troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, I think by September 11th, uh, 2021. Um, so 20, uh, <clears throat> 20 years to the day after September 11th, uh, after the attacks of September 11th, um, we're slated to bring our troops out of, out uh, you know, uh, uh, the main sort of military force that we have there out of Afghanistan. In the surrounding areas, you know, we're not leaving completely, but for all intents and purposes, that's what's going to happen there. And then <clears throat> one of the other um, pieces that the Biden administration is also looking at, um, not in conjunction, uh, but of course, none of these things happen in a vacuum, is restarting talks um, with Iran and potentially trying to get back into the Iran nuclear deal that was signed under the Obama administration. Um, so I'll, I'll let me stop there um, and and ask you if if you have any sort of opening thoughts on on either of these two um, events. Yeah, they're super complicated. I and you know the the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan is something that I alluded to earlier has been like long promised. Uh, Obama promised to to do it. Trump promised to do it. Biden promised to do it. And it looks like you know, knock on wood, Biden's actually going to do it. And in perhaps the shock of all shocks, uh, President former President Trump sent out a message when President Biden announced that he was planning on fully withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan and said, this is a surprising but like wonderful thing that's happening. It's the first nice thing former president has said about you know, Biden in, in years. <laughs> uh, but it's something where it seems like there's consensus at this point that, you look, we have largely done for better or for worse, we've done what we can in Afghanistan. And as you alluded to, we've been in Afghanistan as a country for 20 years. Uh, it's the first country after the September 11th terrorist attacks that we invaded. Uh, we invaded Afghanistan because at the time, the government, they were governed by the Taliban and the Taliban was giving refuge to terrorist groups up in like the mountain ranges up near the border with Pakistan. And it was, you know, we were there to go after Al Qaeda, but also to remove the Taliban from, from governing in Afghanistan. And by December of 2001, we had removed the Taliban from governing. There were at the time, uh, there were only like 2,500 US troops in uh, Afghanistan. We established the Afghani government and got things up and running. And the hope was, hey, we're gonna turn this into a democracy, you know, perhaps, you know, a lot, Israel, another self-sustaining democracy in the region that could potentially be uh, not only a U.S. ally, but like a beacon of like, look, this is what the Middle East could be. Uh, over the years, not only did we get sucked into the war in Iraq, which you know took a lot of attention for a couple of years, but slowly but surely, the fighting in Afghanistan increased. And over the course of the remainder of uh, President Bush's administration, the, the numbers continue to go up. And by the time President Bush left, uh, there were 25,000 troops in Afghanistan and President Obama came 
to office. And one of his things was like, we got to bring our troops home because at that point we had been at war in Afghanistan for seven years. It, that's, that's a long time. That was pushing the longest war that we had ever been a part of at that time. Who would have known 13, 14 years later, we'd still be at, at war in Afghanistan. Uh, but in 2009, 2010, the fighting became even more intense and the U.S. forces swelled to over 100,000 troops. Um, even in 2011, when uh, we finally got and killed Osama bin Laden in, in Pakistan, there were still 100,000 troops. And while President Obama did bring troop levels way down over the course of his second term, he wasn't able to completely withdraw U.S. forces. I think there were still close to like 10,000 um, U.S. troops there by the end of his tenure. President Trump, again, in his America First policy, wanted to bring as many troops home as possible, but even he couldn't get them home as, despite, I think, honestly, his personal best efforts, like there were members of his administration and, and many members of the military that said, look, we can't leave yet. And look, the, the pushback for years has been, you know, we messed up Afghanistan. Like while there was hope in establishing democracy and, and putting the Afghani government, independent government in there, 20, literally 20 years later, the Taliban hasn't gone anywhere. And in some ways it's, it's stronger than it ever has been. The fighting never stopped. Like there was, there's been continuous, there's, there's a reason we've had troops there for all these years. It's because there's been continuous violence. And the argument against it has been like, look, we can't just leave Afghanistan as like this black hole for the Taliban to step into, for terrorist organizations to step into, for other countries, perhaps such as Russia or Iran or China to step into. And quite honestly, those countries might be the best case scenario. On the other hand, it's like, that's going to be the excuse for the next 50 years. Like we, we there, and I think this is maybe the overwhelming lesson that we've learned from our meddling in the Middle East over these past, not only 20 years, but really past 70 years is like, these are quagmires at, at which there's, there's like quicksand, you know, it's easy to get in and almost impossible to get out. So while I understand that there's always going to be good arguments for, hey, the Afghani government for the good of Afghan democracy, for the Afghani people, they need U.S. troops in there. There's never going to be a moment where that argument's going to go away. So, I mean, at this point, I don't need any more American soldiers dying over there. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're certainly preaching to the choir, like one of the first, I feel like political things that I ever did was attend a march or a rally with my dad, um, in 2001 or two with signs that were, I think I had no, no, uh, no blood for oil or something like that on my, uh, on my poster board. But, but certainly I think, you know, where we are at, you know, when, when, uh, when these things first started happening in, or when these armed conflicts, when we went to, um, Afghanistan, hard to say we got sucked into Iraq. I think we, we, we sent ourselves there pretty deliberately, but I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave that one. Um, my point is not that we didn't go there intentionally, but then once we were in, that was another situation where it was like, well, we thought we had one in two minutes. Mm -hmm. Fair. Two years yeah. later, it's like we have more troops here than ever, you know. Yeah. Shock and awe. Um, I think we were a little bit shocked to find out that you can't just level a country and expect a nation to sprout out of it. Um, but I, I think I think where you are at, and and certainly where where I'm at is is a broader reflection of sort of the entire 
country's feeling about these, you know, the quote unquote forever wars um, that we've been fighting in, in Afghanistan um, for, for, for 20 years now. And, and, and certainly there is that just broader feeling of exhaustion, you know, something that I, I can't talk really about from personal experience with, with no real experience of um, the military myself, but just, but, but certainly just feeling like, you know, we're not, go, we're, we haven't really improved the situation, as you pointed out, and our troops there are not, it's not with military might that we're going to be able to, um, to support or, or help that situation. I think, I think that's what we're coming to terms with. And I think that's something that we, as Americans, you know, on the back half of, uh, the 20th century where we, you know, considerably grew our military might, but also on the backs of some pretty significant victories. Um, World War II, obviously, um, you, uh, you know, certainly point to, to Vietnam and Korea as, uh, as, as, as not in, in that line, in that lineage, but then with the fall of communism, you know, the world sort of looked to the United States as this, as this big superpower. I think that that um, is, is certainly a factually accurate statement. And so there was considerably this feeling, you know, after 9-11 that how dare anybody come attack us on our home soil, we're going to, to deal with this problem the way that we know how, which is, you know, our, our, our military might. And I think that that has been, <clears throat> largely a guiding force of our foreign policy that if we have issues if we feel threatened if we feel that there's you know a source of insecurity for our country we can just deal with it um through through bombs and troop deployments and i think what afghanistan kind of showed us is that you know we were in essence fighting you know terrorism more so than a specific collection of terrorists and so we it's not to say that we didn't, you know, kill a lot of people in these conflicts, um, probably more uh, terrorists and, and members of the Taliban or Al Qaeda that existed, you know, prior to our involvement in these countries. Um, you know, we've killed that number and, and then some um, in the past 20 years. But it's this idea that we were fighting an idea um, and we didn't quite know, you know, on what terms to fight it. And, and for all of our advanced military technology and all of the ways that we think about fighting wars, we were in essentially an unwinnable situation. And it's something that you brought up before, right? Like the military industrial complex too. Unfortunately, there seemed to have been alternative, you know, additional incentives for us to engage in these types of conflicts. Um, and I think now what we're seeing is that like, you know, although that may have been some way that we spurred the economy in the 1950s, right now we're really lacking from that kind of investment at home. And so rather than look towards the military for those types of things, it's possible that, that you know, we have better places to spend these billions and trillions of dollars um, than on forever wars in the Middle East. So yeah, I mean, for me, there is certainly like obviously the, the actual action of withdrawing the troops is um, 
something that I feel is long overdue, but really the mentality shift that's allowing this to happen, which five years ago potentially did not exist, um, is, is the more exciting piece. For sure. And we've talked about this before where, well, let's, let's go back to 2001 when the Congress gave the AUMF the authorization of use of military force to President Bush to go in and invade Afghanistan. That vote, as I'm sure you're aware, was 98 to nothing in the Senate and 420 to one in the House of Representatives. And so I guess, again, shout out to, uh, I forget who it was, Barbara, Barbara Lee. I believe who was uh, who was I think she's from California uh, was the only one to vote against that. Uh, that's going to need to be fact checked. Uh, but so look, I think, I think it, Bernie abstained in the Senate. If I'm correct. yeah, yeah, real courageous there. Uh, <laughs> so, but it, it's important to go back and remember, especially when we criticize President former President Bush and the, those who criticized former President Obama for being in Afghanistan for so long. It was overwhelmingly popular popular at, at the time. It wasn't that Bush made a unilateral decision to go in there, that Obama wanted to, you know, wanted to stay in there. Uh, it's that that classic line from the Toby Key song, like, we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Like, you, you attack us here, look what we're going to do to you in your country. <laughs> like, we're going to destroy your country because you destroyed a few of our buildings. And it's not, like you referenced, that wasn't new as of 2001. Uh, you know, that's something that the United States had been involved in in the last half of of the 20th century, where the United States and the CIA in particular was all over the world in the Middle East and in South, South and Central America. Really, yeah. And, uh, and it's, it was almost like the United States was, it, it wasn't almost, the United States was all of a sudden the world's only superpower and was really flexing its muscles all over and getting involved in everyone's, everyone's business. And uh, we talked about this before, but the Bush and Obama administrations were very similar in a lot of ways with their foreign policy, as different as they were maybe rhetorically or or on some you know domestic policies, where they were very similar. And there were people in their ears. There were there were hawks. There was the military industrial complex, as you alluded to, where and we've we've given Trump credit for this before, where he came along and said like that. I'm not doing that anymore. I know this has been a the Republican Party has been a traditionally like a, a hawk party of, of war in the military. I believe that like, if you're pro-military, you should want our troops home. We don't need any more of our young men and women dying over there. And um, that was a credit. And like I said before, the only reason that Trump wasn't able to bring it home is because again, there were generals where like, then he weirdly empowered a bunch of generals in his inner circle who were pretty much like, don't bring all of the troops home, uh, which whatever, we don't need to get into how we manage his people. But in that, but, but to your point is we've reached a place uh, you know, as a country philosophically where both former President Trump and President Biden can be on the same page and they are on the same page of nothing, but both of them can say, we need to bring our troops home. And everyone pretty much says, unless you have like a, a, a stake, usually an economic stake in that fight. Yeah, that, that's right. We should bring our troops home. And um, as always, it's, it's hard to come home and, you know, it wasn't, it's not a defeat, but it's not a victory and it's hard as a country to sit back and take that. And I can't even imagine the, you know, the men and women that have fought and served over there and had, you know, friends or relatives die over there. And I think it's fair to ask for what, um, which is, which is depressing, but is hopefully a lesson that the country will learn. We didn't learn it after, you know, we were in Afghanistan in the eighties and, you know, 20 years later, we were back there and we've been back there for 20 years. I hope that in another 20 years, we're not back. To get rid of the Soviets, so. (laughs) 
Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure like in the height of all ironies, right? The United States fighting the Soviet Union gives the Taliban weapons. The Taliban defeats the Soviet Union and then uses those weapons to turn on the United States. Like you, you hope that, you know, we do learn from this and don't don't make the same mistakes again in, in 20 years. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I know you feel this way um, too, and, and I'm not even sure it bears saying, but uh, I know that like troops that came home from Vietnam faced sort of some backlash at home. And I, I don't think there's, there is any of that, right? It's, it's these kinds of decisions lie squarely in Washington. They're, they're the ones who are making, uh, making the calls um, here. And, and that's who the, the beef is with um, in, in general. Uh, and, people who sign up to be in the military, um, you know, that takes an incredible amount of courage and bravery just to make that choice. Um, and you really hope that your elected leaders take that, um, take that, you know, sacrifice seriously and, and really put it to the, the ultimate good use um, of the country. And, and I think when we think about, you know, how we're going to move forward from this, um, we hope that that sort of comes back uh, to front to front and center for sure. Yeah. Um, but in in some ways, it's a it's a it's a good segue to look at you know one way that <clears throat> Biden and Trump actually might have agreed on something to you know call it the the flip opposite in the uh, in the Iranian nuclear deal. And so I'm not I'm certainly not going to try and get into the specifics of the deal um, at all. I think. I want to, you know, broadly mention that uh, sort of the purpose of it was to kind of, um, you know, do a little bit of, of, of real diplomacy, right? It is kind of trading um, a reduction in sanctions on, on the Iranian government, economic sanctions that have really been, been very damaging to the country of, uh, you know, Iran's primary um, export to the world has been oil and, and they've really been sort of hamstrung and not able to, to monetize that um, because of, uh, in large part of American sanctions on the country. And, and you know, as, as a political strategy, there are certainly reasons for that. Um, <clears throat> but so, you know, sort of tail end of the Obama years, there is uh, a deal struck, the Iranian nuclear deal, whereby uh, the U.S. will start to ramp down some of these sanctions, and in exchange, um, Iran will kind of grant a little bit more oversight over <clears throat> over their sort of over to the, over their nuclear program, and kind of give uh, the outside world a little bit more insight into what's going on there, and really, you know, try and assure people that they're not enriching the uranium to the capacity of building a bomb. Now, obviously detractors of the deal will say, you can't trust them if they're telling you that they're doing this, they're doing something else in secret. Um, and proponents of the deal will say, this is the only way short of invading Iran to get some type of um, assurances that they're gonna be kind of reducing their nuclear arms capacity. So there is a, you know, certainly a lot of entanglements, but Obama struck this deal. Um, it was in place to the end of it, his administration. And then, you know, shortly after Trump came into power, um, the deal was kind of blown up. Um, observers of the deal 
at the time were sort of in agreement that Iran had been making some reductions, at least observed reductions um, in their nuclear enrichment capacity. Um, and then shortly after the deal was sort of torn up and sanctions were reimposed, um, you know, many feel that that kind of the opposite has happened. Um, now, since Biden came back into power, he's expressed interest in getting back into the nuclear deal. Um, and then everything sort of complicated a little bit further uh, because one of Iran's larger nuclear facilities um, was attacked ostensibly by Israel um, this past week or so that's kind of complicated things um, in the region. But I, I think, so the the specifics of this are, are far more complicated than, than I've outlined here. And, and honestly, many of them go over my head. But what I wanted to ask you about is kind of, you know, how do we think about our approach to regimes like the Iranian regime or the North Korean one, where, you know, there are a lot of things that we don't agree with, with how they treat their own people, or um, certainly statements that they've made. Um, but yet, you know, they are, and, and, and also sort of they fall under the category of like America's biggest threats on the international stage, right? Like, how do we think about um, approaching these countries? Is it the tough talk and economic sanction and sort of threats of war? Or is it more, you know, what we saw potentially in the back half of the Obama administration, which is let's engage and potentially come to some type of agreement or compromise? Well, there's, of course, there's no one size fits all solution to how to deal with, you know, Iran versus North Korea. I mean, you could argue that what Obama was trying to do with Iran and like, hey, let's compromise and let's talk and let's try to bring you into the like international community. Trump maybe was also trying to do with North Korea, uh, con quite controversially on, on both parts. Uh, I want to step back, actually. I, I do want to, I'll, I'll answer that question because uh, it's a good question. I want to talk about it. But something I've been thinking about, and I think this is maybe not going to, this is a bit of a hot take. I don't know why what position, who the United States thinks it is, we are, to say that other countries shouldn't have nuclear weapons. So I think it's pretty well known to anybody listening to this that the United States is the only country in the world to have ever used nuclear weapons on civilian populations. They used them twice at the end of World War II to, uh, in Japan and Hiroshima. And on, any, on any um, like non-test type of situation, yeah, yeah. civilian right. or otherwise. Yeah. So, Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, United States, the only ones that ever use nuclear weapons. And so and then there's the huge proliferation of nuclear weapons uh, after World War II, and which is that simultaneously occurring in the Cold War. And so the United States has nuclear weapons, the Soviet Union has nuclear weapons, um, the United Kingdom has nuclear weapons, France has nuclear weapons, and China, as they come into their own, they get nuclear weapons. Those five countries sit down in, I think, 1970 and agree to the nuclear like non-proliferation treaty. And the United States and Russia say that they're going to with, you know, draw down some of their nuclear stockpiles and pretty much agree that, hey, we're not going to let any other countries in the world have them. Uh, India and Pakistan are two countries that are huge rivals uh, and are, were not originally party to the treaty, but they also now have nuclear weapons. Uh, North Korea, 
quite infamously has been testing nuclear weapons. They may or may not have a nuclear weapon. So there's seven, maybe eight countries that have them. Uh, most people believe that Israel also has nuclear weapons from the United States, uh, but a very few countries in the world. So anyway, I've been thinking about this just because I don't know, like if, if you are the leader of North Korea or Iran, you know, you've looked at some of these other countries that acquiesce to this, you know, the, the leaders of, I don't know, Egypt or Algeria or some, like some of these other leaders that have said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll give up our nuclear testing program. I'm not going to have one. And what's happened to them? Like they, they've all been deposed and they're no longer in power. And we can argue whether that's a good thing or not a good thing. But look, I know that as a world community, we don't want a proliferation of nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons in the hands of leaders of Iran and North Korea, which I generally believe are not great people. I don't think that doesn't promote like global stability. On the other hand, like the United States having nuclear weapons doesn't promote necessarily promote global stability either. And like, I don't know that I buy that, like if Iran gets a nuclear weapon or North Korea gets a nuclear weapon that the United States all of a sudden it should be scared. The United States has literally thousands of nuclear weapons. Uh, and so whatever, I don't, I'm ambivalent about it. I don't, I don't want more nuclear weapons in the world, but I don't know that the United States is the one to be telling people that they cannot have nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I couldn't, uh, could not agree more. Uh, ideally nobody would have nuclear weapons, but I, I, you know, I feel the same way about, uh, automatic rifles and high capacity magazines, but that, that is, um, yeah, I mean, you know, to, to what extent does the United States have any right to sort of infringe upon these other countries' sovereignty? I think that is an absolutely a fair question. And you can, you know, people would point to, well, you know, Iran's unstable. They've said, you know, these things about the destruction of Israel or something like that, which, are, are totally fair points. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people would point to the election of Donald Trump and say, everyone's cool with this guy having access to the nuclear codes, like the biggest nuclear arsenal on the planet. Like that, that shouldn't, you know, if that doesn't scare people, then I don't know, you know, really what, what should. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have, I don't have much to say about that except except that, you know, these types of economic um, sanctions as a, a method to sort of prevent certain countries from getting um, nuclear weapons, like as a, as a viable alternative to kind of military intervention, if we decide that such and such country just cannot be allowed to have nuclear weapons, um, I, I think is also potentially, you know, not the right way to do things. If we think about how um, certain countries in the middle, middle East have become these sort of havens for kind of radicalization, it has primarily been lack of economic opp opportunity that allows um, the, you know, the quote unquote, the terrorist regimes to take over. Um, and so, and, you know, you, you were right to sort of point to what we've done to North Korea in, in isolating them and allowing uh, or, or, or sort of poke, pushing them into a corner. And, and you can see a lot of the same um, aspects with Iran. I, I mean, I, th I think you're absolutely right to say, you know, you know, why are we the ones or, or what gives us the right to be the ones to engage in this 
at all. Um, I think, I think it's, you know, we're de facto the ones because it's our economic sanctions that are essentially preventing Iran from doing anything, right? Like the reason, you know, they would more or less be continuing to trade with the European Union who were trying to remain in the Iranian nuclear deal if it weren't for the fact that we said anybody who's trading with Iran is also going to receive the same sort of sanction um, before. And then everyone was like, all right, whatever, Iran, you're on your own. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't know if that, I mean, uh, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying though. Yeah. So, I mean, sanctions are a useful tool and they're something that you, you have to have like in your arsenal to, to be able to pull out and, and penalize different regimes for, uh, you know, potential atrocities that they're committing against their own people. The United States has used sanctions effectively against members of like the Russian government, the, the Chinese government, for example, um, the Russian government for potentially meddling in United States elections, the Chinese government for the, the human rights violations, the atrocities, the really the genocide that they're committing um, in one of their provinces, some of their provinces. Uh, and so I think sanctions, like really targeted sanctions like that against certain members of those governments are really effective. If you look at the types of sanctions that the United States has put on Iran and North Korea amongst other countries, um, Venezuela would be another potentially a less severe, but good example. Uh, look, best case with sanctions is the sanctions all largely, these types of sanctions fall on the civilians, these innocent people that live in these countries. Uh, in best case scenario, what you do is the sanctions have such a deleterious effect on these countries and their populations that they say, hey, we can no longer have this type of government because look at our lives under this type of government and you overthrow your government. Worst case scenario, the government is hardliners, has control of the military, locks everyone down, stays in power. So we, we the United States doesn't get the regime change that we're looking for. And most of the population now grows to hate the United States because the government can point to like, why, why is there no food? Why is there a lack of medicine? Why do you ha not have opportunities to get you know, employment? Well, because of what the United States is doing to you. And it breeds this hatred. And this is what's happened for years in the Middle East, not only economic sanctions, but when we have like troops in these countries, like to go back to our early discussion, like look at the United States history in Iran. The United States CIA orchestrated an overthrow of their government in the early 1950s to put ostensibly like a United States puppet into place, the Shah, who was overthrown famously in the Islamic revolution of, of 79, right? But where do you think that hatred for the United States came from in 1979, like the Iranian hostage crisis? It's because they knew that the United States had, their government was beholden to the United States. The United States was like pillaging that country for its oil. You grow up with generations of people hating the United States, and that leads to, unfortunately, things like terrorist attacks, right? So it's like, it's... I don't know, this, I'm down like a depressing rabbit hole, but it's kind of like the, the long-term effects of these things. Yeah, we're squeezing Iran right now, but it's people are going to look at the United States as the cause of their misfortune. And again, if you're not providing people with opportunities, what happens is almost always young men who turn to violence, and certainly we can point to like a lack of economic opportunities in our own country that have led to people becoming extremist and violent in our own country, perhaps even more so in a country like Iran that has been so squeezed where you don't have any, there's no hope. What do you turn to? You turn, turn towards terrorist organizations that promise you hope. So uh, yeah, that's all to say that I don't I don't really agree with <laughs> much of any of the foreign policy that we've had to towards Iran or North Korea for that matter. These are 
terrible, horrible people, but they're the leaders of their countries and we have to engage with them productively. I totally understand that like I've glossed over, I haven't mentioned Israel and Israel has real legitimate fears about, um, you know, a a nuclear armed Iran uh, or even, you know, an emboldened Iran in any way. Uh, With that said, while Israel is a close ally that the United States do everything, well, largely anything it can to protect, it's not, you know, Israel is not the United States. Uh, and so to be acting like on behalf of Israel, I don't know that that's necessarily what we, we should be doing as government either. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's so much, uh, so many great points you, you, you had in there. I think the one that I basically just wanted to hit, hit on again is, is, is exactly what you said in terms of uh, you know, what is, what is kind of our, our end goal here? Um, these economic sanctions that we, you know, targeted economic sanctions against very rich and powerful people, freezing their assets, you know, whatever we can get them to do potentially what we want. But when we essentially cripple an entire nation's economy, uh, for people who have no, no say in, in what their government is really doing, you know, what, what is the end result? And I think you're, you're absolutely right. The end result is that we get a lot of people who don't like America. And I think that was really what was missing in the early two thousands from the conversation about Afghanistan or about Iraq, right? We talked about terrorism as if it was this tangible thing that we could point to and that we understood, but we really never address like, well, why is it that certain people in these areas hate America? And it was like, oh, they hate, you know, the way of life. They hate, you know, the women not wearing hijab. And it's like, is is that really enough for people to decide to commit suicide, uh, you know, 10,000 miles away from their home country? Or, or are there some other contributing factors? Are there other reasons that people may be getting radicalized? And that that's certainly, you know, one piece of, of really how we need to think about foreign policy going forward. Are we creating opportunities? And, and it, you know, it dovetails into the immigration discussion, right? Like, are we creating opportunities for these people in their own countries? Um, or are we actually making it harder for them to survive there? So the, the few that are, are not the few, but those that are not becoming um, radicalized or joining Al-Qaeda or ISIS are now forced to like, I can't live in my own, in my home country anymore. I have to go somewhere else because we can't export anything. We can't import anything. There's no food, there's no water, there's no jobs. So I think one of the, the things that I potentially set out to, to, to kind of touch on is that I think we grew up learning about foreign policy. We grew up learning about American history as like a good guys and bad guys. And the U.S. is on the side of the good and the righteous. And we're trying to bring democracy and and freedom in, in big old air quotes to these other countries. And so therefore, our cause is a noble one. And therefore, you know, no matter what we're doing, you know, we are in the right, like in the in the big picture, we're in the right. And I think what we now are learning and we're now sort of coming to grips with is that this notion of good guys and bad guys is very much subjective. It's very much, you know, 
there are uh, children in other countries who grow up learning the same stories, but with the opposite, who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Um, and, and, and that's something that, that unfortunately we have to, to, to grapple with and think about how do we want to continue to position ourselves going forward. And I think to, to get back to our, wherever we started with this discussion, it, 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 and one of those things, it is potentially negotiating with or negotiating these situations, maybe not in face-to-face -face in, in, in conversations, but figuring out, you know, how do we deal with these regimes that we potentially don't see eye to eye with, but that, you know, regime change is not as simple as we, as we would hope it to be. Like we tried that in Iraq, right? We tried that in Afghanistan and we don't have the results really that we wanted. So <clears throat> maybe in this new age, in this sort of digital age of connectedness where uh, people from all over the world are, you know, interacting on social media and things like that, maybe we have a different tact that we can take here. Um, and that's, that's kind of, I think, something that we'll have to look at it and, and hope for. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think people would always point to these types of issues and say like, oh, if, if you're interested in diplomacy and these certain issues, it's because you're naive, because you don't understand, you know, really what's going on. And I think there's certainly something to that, but there potentially is something to the fact that like there have been a lot of sort of career people focused on these issues and it doesn't seem like their method of solving these problems has really advanced them meaningfully over the past 50 years. You ever seen the movie, The Kingdom, Jamie Foxx, Jennifer Garner? I, you know, I remember when it, it's like early 2000s, maybe. It's like, maybe, maybe like 2006, 2007, yeah, somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah. It's a great movie. People should go watch it. I'm about to spoil the ending. So spoiler alert. If you plan on going, if you plan on going to watch the kingdom right after this pause and skip ahead 30 seconds. Uh, but anyway, there's like a terrorist attack. There's like a U.S. contractor, you know, CIA that's over there and um, J.B. Fox and Jennifer Gardner and um, I'm blanking on his name. I think Chris, he's Chris Cooper awesome character actor. Uh, all of them work for like the CIA and one of their friends gets um, blown up and killed in the, in this terrorist attack. And so they go over and they, you know, shoot up everyone. They find the people responsible. They, they find and, and kill the people responsible. The very last scene in the movie is someone says to Jamie Foxx's character, what did you say to Jennifer Garner's character? Cause she's devastated. One of her friends has just been blown up and you know, they replay it. And at the time he says, don't worry, we're going to kill them all. And then they they show they cut to the scene where Jamie Foxx's character is killing the the guy the bomb maker, and he, his son leans in, his little boy, and his the dead father says, "Don't worry, son, we're gonna kill them all." And it's 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 like I'm like getting chills even talking about it, but it's it's what exactly what you just said, where we grow up telling ourselves that we're the good guys. That same narrative, no one grows up telling themselves they're the bad guys, you know. I. Uh, and to go back to September 11th, and I know I've been down these like history rabbit holes now, but the United States, after the first Gulf War, when Iraq invaded Kuwait in the early 90s, the United States stepped in and, and put a stop to that. And I think the vast majority of the world agreed they did a good thing. Mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein stayed in power, though. And so the United States left troops in Saudi Arabia through, throughout the 1990s. They had thousands of troops stationed in Saudi Arabia. Osama bin Laden, as famously, is... Saudi Arabian. 
And one of his things was, look, look what the, the, these are the occupiers here. They've come into our lands, our whole Saudi Arabia is the home to Mecca and Medina, the two holiest cities in Islam. And United States troops are all, all over these, these places. And so, I mean, that's one of his rallying cries to get people to join Al-Qaeda. And it's like all of these things are intertwined and we, we have to be conscious of the things. Um, and yeah, I mean, like you said, hopefully with this younger generation, people are. And my final point I would say is that if and when we do pull out, out of Afghanistan, we need to allow the Afghani people that want to leave to, to settle in the United States. There are, there are thousands, tens of thousands of people that have helped us that are going to be in danger if and when the United States leaves. And as you noted in our previous episode, President Trump dropped the, the refugee cap to something like 11,000, which is as small as it's ever been. President Biden, you probably saw this in the news, originally said that he was going to keep that same level of 15,000. Huge backlash, said, walked it back and said, oh, actually, we're going to bring it up to 62,000 to be, to be determined if you know he sticks to his word this time. Uh, but my, my, that's, that's my final point, is that the United States, in like the Kurds in Turkey that we totally abandoned, who are subsequently largely massacred by um, the Turkish regime, we can't let the same thing happen in Afghanistan. We need to let those people that want to come to the United States that are safe into our country. Yeah, there's, I think there's, there is room certainly is. All right. Uh, when we come back, we will stay overseas, but with a far more, more light light and uh, less consequential topic talking about some soccer. So over the weekend, this story broke. It was actually like late on Sunday night that there were 12 clubs, European football clubs, that were breaking away to start a Super League. And before we dive into this story in too much detail, we'll step back and give just a little overview for people that are not potentially soccer fans out there. And we'll explain like why we're talking about this. So soccer is perhaps, obviously, perhaps not the biggest sport in the world. And Europe is where the vast majority of the best players and, and best teams are. And they're called clubs. There are five really huge leagues in Europe in the Premier League in England, uh, La Liga in Spain, Serie A in Italy, uh, League One in France. And what's the league called in Germany? Bundesliga. Bundesliga in, in Germany. So those are the five biggest ones. But there are leagues everywhere. You know, the Netherlands has their has their league. Ukraine has their league. Portugal has their league. Uh, Wales. All these all the countries have their have their own leagues. Uh, and European football is is massive massive business. Uh, they also the best clubs from each country also qualify for this thing called the Champions League. And so the best, depending on the league size, for example, there are four Premier League English Premier League teams that qualify every year, and they enter this thirty-two team tournament from all the best clubs across Europe, and it's a really prestigious thing. Uh, this wasn't enough for these 12 clubs that decided to start this Super League. And, and we're leaked on Sunday night, like I said, in the dead of the night in uh, much of Europe, which is probably telling uh, in and of itself that 12 teams had come together to, to break away from the Champions League and to start really their own league. And 
One other thing to note about European soccer leagues is that there's a thing called relegation, which means that in the top leagues, the teams that finish at the bottom get moved down. And the teams that are in like league two, what we here in the United States will call like the minor leagues get moved, the best teams in that league get moved up. And so there's huge financial implications depending on what, what league you are. But it, one of the great things, what people love, what I love about European football is that like there's, there are stakes at all ends of the standings, what they call a table. You know, there are people are competing at the top to win the league. People are competing to get into the champions league in the middle. And at the bottom, people are competing just to stay in the league. It's all, it's really, it's as egalitarian as it can be. And there's competition everywhere. I, uh, it is very much as people probably surmise at this point, unlike American sports leagues. And that's going to be key to come back to in a minute. Uh, but the 12 clubs are these massive clubs and they decided to, like I said, start the super league. They're going to come together for uh, like the next 23 years to, to create this league. Uh, those clubs included six clubs in England. So uh, many you probably heard Manchester United, Manchester city, Liverpool, which is your favorite team, Chelsea, which is my favorite team, Arsenal and Tottenham, which is a joke, but we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, there were three uh, Italian teams, uh, Juventus, AC Milan, and Inter Milan, three uh, Spanish teams, Real Madrid, biggest club in the world, Barcelona, the second biggest club in the world, Atletico Madrid. Uh, those were the 12 teams that came out on Sunday saying that, hey, we're going to start our Super League. There were supposed to be up to 15 teams, permanent, quote unquote, permanent teams in this league. Those other three teams uh, allegedly were going to be Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund in Germany and um, PSG in France. Those three clubs didn't sign on on Sunday, but were rumored to join. And then those 15 teams were going to, you know, combine to be the Super League. It provoked outrage. I mean, that's probably, I, I can't even think of a strong enough word to say the reaction that it provoked across Europe and really across the world. Uh, people were furious. And not only did people probably heard of the FIFA, which is like the organizing body of, of global football that runs the World Cup. FIFA was upset. UEFA, which runs the European, the Champions League and all the events in Europe, they were furious. The Prime Minister of England, Boris Johnson, held a press conference just to denounce the six English clubs that proposed to be a part of this league. And the back in there were fan fans at all of these clubs were there protesting, and as European soccer fans are wont to do, you know, lighting things on fire and uh, having having themselves quite the quite the scene. But people were genuinely outraged. So, Ricky, like, why 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 was everyone so outraged? Um, I, I think just just for what you were saying about um, the the meritocracy aspect. So a, as you noted, the Champions League is for the best teams of each um, of of each league. So as you, as you mentioned, the Premier League sends four teams, but uh, clearly in the Super League, six of those six teams had signed up, and so the the idea of course, being that, you know, every year two teams miss out this year, most likely my club Liverpool, which had won the champions league, uh, not long ago. Oh, actually three, three of those six clubs were slated to, to miss out. Right. Cause Leicester looks like they'll finish top four, <clears throat> um, top four this year. And so by creating the super league, you know, these owners are thinking we're going to guarantee ourselves champions league type revenue every single year forever. Um, we won't have to worry about the years that we don't make the league. We don't make the champions league. Um, 
and and that's going to be great financially for us. So you understand from a profit motive uh, exactly what people were thinking about. And and there were some numbers released um, about the TV revenue deals that they were looking at, and they're and they're huge, right? So as you mentioned, each country, you know, including Belgium and uh, Turkey, which sends like Galatasaray every year, and and the and the Red Stars from Moscow, those teams also play in the Champions League, um, you know, admittedly to much lower, uh, much lower TV ratings and revenues when they play. But when these big clubs play, there's a ton of money out there. But because of the Champions League structure, although the bigger clubs are making more money, they're not making nearly as much as if they only played each other and played each other all the time. Um, but because... Europe is a little bit, and when I say a little bit, I mean very different from the way that we think about things here. Uh, there was, as you said, an, an absolute outrage. And for the little guy, which it feels like we are in many of these situations where these types of decisions happen without us, and then we just have to eat them, you know, uh, take it and like it. Um it was not the case. Um, and I think that that is, that is so cool. So cool as a sport, as an American sports fan who like, doesn't understand that, um, you know, it, it would, for me, it would have been like in being in Oakland when the Raiders are getting taken away from you. And all of a sudden you guys, everybody in the city goes out and protests. And, you know, many people did in Oakland and all of a sudden they're like, okay, you're right. This team does not, you know, although there we have owners here, this team does not belong to the owners. It belongs to the city. It belongs to the fans. And that's really what happened. And it was, I mean, it was so cool. Like how quickly these teams were all just like backtracking, you know, Chelsea to, you know, their credit pulled out first. John Henry, who's the American owner of Liverpool, um, gave a huge speech about how like, you know, nobody out like this one is all on me. I, I miscalculated, I misunderstood um, what this sport is all about and what the passion is. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was really cool to see. And, and in some ways, just that like real um, that victory of sort of like the little guy over corporate interest that, you know, maybe 10 years ago, even in a place like Europe may not have been as big of a, or may not have been as had as big of a reaction, but we're in this age now where public perception and, and how, um, how these big businesses are operating and how they treat people and, and, and how they sort of interact in a world where public sentiment is important. Um, I don't know. It's it just very cool to see and heartwarming that kind of like the, the, the good prevailed at the end here for me. Yeah. As you said, this was all about the greed of 12 to 15 incredibly wealthy people. And for like an American casual sports fan, it might seem like bizarre because, but these owners wanted to get together and make essentially an American sports league. Like if you look at the values of the franchises in the NBA or the NFL that have just skyrocketed over these past 20 years, a large part of that is because you know that you are one of 30 teams that's getting a huge, uh, every year you're getting a cut of a huge amount of revenue. And for these 
12 to 15 owners, they're looking at it and say, we should do the same thing. Guarantee us consistently millions of dollars in profits. It, this was this whole venture was underwritten by a $6 billion promise from JP Morgan to, to just to start it before we even sold any TV rights or anything like that. And it's interesting that you mentioned John Henry. So let's talk about it. So the, the Premier League owners of the six clubs that we mentioned, like who are those people? Arsenal, owned by Stan Kroenke, who also owns the Los Angeles Rams. Why the Rams in Los Angeles? They used to be in St. Louis. Well, Stan Kroenke moved them against the wishes of all the people in St. Louis to Los Angeles because he thought it was more financially viable and financially lucrative for him. This guy also owns the Colorado Avalanche. So we have an American owner of Arsenal. Chelsea, again, my team, owned by a, a Russian oligarch who, who was shady AF uh, and <laughs> like made his money controversially in the oil and gas business after the Soviet, the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, worth, so Stan Kroenke worth $8.2 billion. Roman Abramovich, owner of, Russian owner of Chelsea, worth $14.5 billion. Liverpool, your team, owned by John Henry and Tom Warner and LeBron James and the Fenway Sports Group, really just like the worst people. So again, they own the Red Sox too. These are just like the worst people. I hate them as Red Sox owners. I, you're, you're doubly unlucky that you got them as both owners of the Red Sox and Liverpool. They're combined worth like $3 billion, but they're, they're terrible. Manchester City, they're owned by the Abu Dhabi United Group, which is exactly what it sounds like. The, the Emirate of Abu Dhabi bought Manchester City a few years ago was part of like a global rehabilitation image of, of their emirate. Uh, so the family that owns it is worth $22 billion. Uh, Manchester United owned by the Glazer family worth $4.7 billion. Also the owners of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And finally, Tottenham Hotspur is the only one owned by uh, an Englishman. Uh, this man, Joe Lewis and Daniel Levy, who are worth over $5 million, billion dollars. So what, what that tells me is, look, these are largely foreign owners who didn't grow up in England, who didn't, who don't care. I mean, you care about the teams that you own. I don't, I'm not, I don't doubt that, but they didn't grow up as fans of, of these teams. They don't understand really football, what football means to people in England, because you can't possibly, unless you grew up there, these are businessmen from all over the world that are just buying these teams and treating them as like another asset. And so they're out there for greed. And like you said, people, like individual people, the outrage was so great that even things like, and this is credit to like the Liverpool players and Jurgen Klopp, the coach, the manager of Liverpool, they were like, we're against this. We were not consulted on this. This was about the greed of like 12 to 15 billionaires to try to make even more money for themselves and did not think at all about the coaches, the players, the fans. And players were outraged. Fans were outraged. Uh, former players were like blasting all of these owners and yeah, then Chelsea was the first one. And apparently they were one of, again, maybe I'm just, this is a homerism here, but they were like rumored to be the last club in that wanted to do it because Abramovich and his $14 billion can run his club at a loss every year because it doesn't matter to him. Uh, but uh, John Henry and his $3 billion didn't want to be doing that anymore. Uh, and so they drop out and within, you know, the, within this week, well, we're recording this on Thursday. So it was four days ago, it was announced all the English clubs have already dropped out. It's not going to happen. It's not going to say it's not going to happen in the future, but absolutely like a wild roller coaster ride for the week of look, it looked like European soccer as we knew it was going, it would have fundamentally changed European soccer. There's no doubt about it. And fans stood up and saved it. Yeah. And I, I mean, what I think the, the coolest thing is, um, is that, 
fans, like even, even, you know, Tottenham fans who haven't sniffed the champions league in a birth in in quite some time. Are all, terrible. I don't know where they think they get off. Just even getting included in here. I guess to that credit, if, if they, if you got invited and you knew you had no business being there, then I guess you, you go and join if you get invited. <laughs> right. Right. But, but you know, these these fan groups that know that, you know, there are going to be down years that we're not going to get invited to the the prestigious tournament. And we have like a chance for a lock are kind of like, well, this is like a backhanded way of getting into something. Like if I, if I got to kind of cheat to do that, it's not, it's not worth the same to me as it is when we win our way through the premier league to get to play in the champions league next year. Like that means something. And it is that like, you know, the, the purity of sports that in so many ways we, we, you know, you, you grow up with, right. But then of course, as you get older and you become more cynical and, and less naive, you're okay with saying, well, you know, it's just a business when your favorite player gets traded away from your team or, or the Red Sox freaking sell Mookie bets. Uh, right. Like, exactly. You're just like, yeah. well, all right, this is, this is what it is, but to a lot of these people, you know, and for, for anybody out there who's not a, an English Premier League fan, um, watch a movie like Green Street Hooligans or something that's really not even related to the soccer itself, but it's the the culture and the, uh, you know, the, the team songs. And these clubs go back to like, eight, you know, the late 1800s and that kind of tradition and pageantry, like you don't, like for me, I get that also in like, American college football in a way that I just don't get out of the NFL. And it's part of the reason that, that that's like my second favorite, uh, you know, league to watch. Um, there is that, that element of the, of tradition here that's steeped in, obviously this is a business. These players get paid insane amounts of money. Um, but, but uh, there's, there's something a little bit different about it. And this is, you know, if you were ever questioning, you know, what's a, what, what is there that's a little bit different? You, all you have to do is take a look at the last four days, um, the reaction of the fans and um, in, you know, in, in optimistic news, the, the powers that be seem to have listened and, and we're going to get to keep things the way they are for a little longer. The little guy won for once, you know? They, you, you know, they got to give you these every now and again, just, just so you keep playing the game. But uh, it, it's like, it's like Kevin Malone said in the office. He's like, it's just nice to win one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, man. Well, so much for the short episode. They never, uh, they never seem to be too many good. You got, you got, I like talking to you, but you can't, <laughs> can't cut me off. All right, dude. Um, I will see you very soon. All right. Talk to you. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day no agenda, not yet. Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were aware, some morning left your ego bruised. 
But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The pains we share That American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain so we're online, we seem to have forgotten the value sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your regal bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share. Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics Trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you'll leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find And chase the lion's head And folks are different mind Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz